Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. As our kids are leaving and having fun and their time together. Many of you know I'm a college basketball fan, and there's a certain team that, like last week I talked about the Duke Blue Devils, you either hate them or you love them, there's probably another basketball team that you either hate or you love, and that's the Kentucky Wildcats. It was the 1966 NCAA championship game, men's basketball. It was a famous game in NCAA history. This was no ordinary game. Texas Western College, now UTEP, from El Paso, would face the formidable Kentucky Wildcats. Now, the Kentucky Wildcats were coached by famous Adolph Rupp. If you know anything about Adolph Rupp, from 1930 to 1972, he won four NCAA national championships and won 876 games. He was called the Baron of the Bluegrass. He is royalty in NCAA coaching history. And so all the odds had the Kentucky Wildcats winning the national championship because, you see, they were the big school. They had the big name. They had the dynasty. It was Kentucky. And then you had this no-name team from Texas, with a new coach, a rookie coach, Dan Haskins. Very little experience. He didn't have the power to recruit the way that Rupp did with Kentucky. So it came down time for the showdown between these two teams, the, the big Kentucky Wildcats against this no-name team from Texas. Well, it was also a very interesting game because here's the issue. It was the first time in NCAA history that a team started five black basketball players. So there were some racial issues going on in the game as well. And Texas Western had to face some obstacles. Their star player got into some foul trouble. Their other player got injured. And so it looked like they were possibly going to lose against Kentucky. But then through all these obstacles, they actually beat Kentucky 72-56 to to win the national championship. Now, you could say this was truly a David and Goliath type of sports story. This tiny, insignificant team from Texas that nobody ever heard of beats the Kentucky Wildcats. And so you have all this drama surrounding this game. You've got the racial segregation. You've got the the rookie coach against the famous experienced coach. You've got the no-name team against the big team. All this drama surrounding this whole issue of David versus Goliath. Now, you don't even have to read your Bible to know the David and Goliath story. Our culture knows David and Goliath, don't they? A little guy beats a big guy with a slingshot. And isn't the moral of the story, the bigger they are, the harder they fall? Isn't that the story of David and Goliath? Isn't the story of David and Goliath about how we just need to go out and fight our giants? You and I just need to muster up enough strength, enough courage to go out, get our slingshot, and face our giants and kill the giants in our lives. 
Throughout history, there's been some weird interpretations of the David and Goliath story. Some wild allegory or wild symbolism. For example, there were people that would say that each of the five stones that David used represented something. And so stone number one represented courage, and stone number two represented resourcefulness, and stone number three represented ingenuity, and on and on. And so sometimes you can come to this very familiar story and get all wrapped up into the symbolism and the minute details that you miss the forest for the trees about what this very familiar story is. Now, we can come to this story and be very man-centered. I could come to you and say, just be like David and kill the giants in your life. Muster up enough strength, get your five smooth stones, and kill your giants. And I could make this a how-to sermon. And I could be very clever. I could say, okay, here's alliteration. I'm going to give you five steps this morning on how to kill your giants. And they're all going to start with A. Or they're all going to rhyme. And they're all going to be about the five smooth stones. And just if you just follow these how-to steps, you can go out and you can slay your giant. But here's the problem with that approach. I would be setting all of you up for failure this morning in one of two ways. Some of you, if I gave you a how-to sermon, you would automatically think, I can do that. I'm pretty good, I can, I can write the steps down, I can go out in my own power, I can go out in my own ingenuity, and Sean, just give me the information I need and I'll kill my giants. And then you would be very prideful in doing things in your own power. Some of you, on the other hand, would walk away from a sermon like that being very defeated, almost guilt-ridden, because you would think to yourself, Pastor Sean, you don't know the giants in my life. They're way too big. And to give me five steps is just another thing I have to deal with. I can't even think of one step. It's so overwhelming. I can't face my giants. And so you would leave this place feeling defeated, feeling discouraged, and maybe even feeling guilty. So if I gave you a how-to sermon to go out there and just kill your giants, some of you would leave this place feeling prideful. You'd feel inflated. I can do it. And some of you would feel deflated. I can't do it. I'd set you up for failure. Because oftentimes we've come to this story thinking that it's all about us. Let me shatter a paradigm you may have about this story. And maybe you grew up in Sunday school thinking this, or maybe you still think this. You and I are not David in this story. We often tend to think that we're David in this story. We're not David in this story. As a matter of fact, everything in this story points to the fact that we're not David. I want you to think about who you and I truly are in this story. We are Israel. We're Israel, not David. Have you ever been paralyzed with fear to the point that you, you couldn't move? Have some of you been paralyzed in fear where you thought you were almost going to die? Now, some of us in this room were in an experience back in 2009, right? Where's Stephanie and where's Diana and some others? We went on a mission trip to Nicaragua. You guys remember that? Some of you have heard this story before. We're leaving this village to go back to uh, the missionary compound. It's about a six-hour bus ride, and there's a blockade in this village that we're supposed to go through. Sandinista rebels have taken over the town, so we're not allowed to get through. So we all come up in our buses, and, I, and, I, and I'm in the first bus, and I'm the first passenger beside, behind the driver, and from about me to where that door is over there, there are about 200 Sandinista rebels with machine guns and machetes just looking at us. And then one of them gets on the bus and looks around and goes, gringos. 
And I think, what are they going to do? Are they going to rape the women? Are they going to kill us? Are they going to kidnap us? And at that moment, it was like, this is a paralyzing fear. And then I began to pray and ask the Lord to help us. And then thankfully, God in his grace allowed the, like, the Red Sea to part and we were able to leave and go through the blockade. But there's moments like that where you're just paralyzed with fear that you feel like you're going to die. Paralysis. Now, why do I bring up paralyzing fear? And why do I say that you and I are not David in this story? Well, I want you to recap from last week. Open your Bibles to to 1 Samuel 17, but turn over to to chapter 16 for a moment, because this is where we looked at last week, that very important passage of Scripture in verse 7. I want you to keep the context here, because 1 Samuel 17 comes right on the heels of 1 Samuel 16, and so there's a context here. There's there's build-up here. What did we look at last week? 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Looks can be deceiving, as we remember from last week. Everybody was looking at outward appearance. And God had rejected the older brother, Eliab, and had chosen David the youngest. And that's what's going on in 1 Samuel 17. Everybody's looking at outward appearance. So let's dive into this story. I'm not going to read all of it because it's a long chapter and and we're going to kind of take it in pieces. But when you get to Hebrew narrative and you get to Hebrew stories from the Old Testament, oftentimes they unfold like scenes from a movie. So we're going to look at six scenes this morning from this passage that build upon one another and they build towards this climax. So six scenes, six stages, uh, six vignettes, if you will, and we'll go into detail. But before we do that, let me just give you the main point. Here's the main point of this entire chapter. God honors his name and saves his people through the weakness of his chosen king. God honors his name, and we'll see that. God saves his people, we'll see that, through the weakness of his chosen king. So let's read scene one. Scene 1 is in verses 1 through 11. 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Demon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. For those of you that don't know what cubits are, that's nine feet, nine inches. Tall dude. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly 
afraid. I want to describe to you a word that's not very well translated in our English translations. In all the translations, the, the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard, the King James, the New King James, all your modern translations, in verse 4, they, they all translate the word champion. There was a champion that came out. Look at verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Do you know what the literal word in the Hebrew means? A man in the middle. A middleman. Now let me give to you the imagery here that you should be seeing in this battle. You've got the Israelite army in Saul on one side of the hill, and you've got a valley in between, and on the other side of the hill, on the other side of the valley, you've got the Philistine army. And so the Philistines send down their man in the middle, and the Israelites were supposed to send down their man in the middle, and the two men in the middle would fight to the death, and whoever won that victory would be given to whichever army the man in the middle won. So instead of having both armies come down and slaughter each other, they, they sent a representative. There's a substitute. There's a representative. There's a mediator that comes down to fight on behalf of the people, a man in the middle. But I also want you to think about the interesting description that's used here for Goliath. I mean, there's a lot of description that goes in here to describing who he is. He's nine foot nine inches tall. He's got um, all of this armor and this javelin and just all this description used to describe him. But there's something interesting. If you go back to the original language and you look at the wording that's used to describe him, bronze was like a reddish color but almost it looks like as if he's covered in scales. Scales. It's almost eerily like he's a snake. He's depicted as this bronze, red, snake-like giant. It's almost eerie when you think about it. He's this towering giant who's described like a snake. But what's the most important thing is what comes out of his mouth. Look at verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. I defy. It's a key word in this entire passage of Scripture. In chapter 17, the word defy shows up five times. That's what this whole chapter is about. You've got this pagan Philistine snake-like giant blaspheming, defying the name of the living God. It means to sharply taunt. It means to speak evil. It means to bring reproach. It means to blaspheme. And what's Israel's response? Look at, the, look at verse 11. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed in the original Hebrew means really they were shattered to pieces like a pot shattering. They are shattered in paralyzing fear. And the other word there that's used, they were greatly afraid, really means intimidated. So you've got Saul the king, Israel the army, they're shattered, they're broken in fear, they're paralyzed in fear, and they're intimidated by this snake-like nine-foot-nine giant that's spouting off blasphemies against the living God. So scene one ends with tension. You've got Israel over here shaking in their boots, and you've got this snake-like giant daring them to come fight against him. Now let's go to scene two, and I want you to notice how it starts. Let's look at verse 12. Now David. Now David. It's interesting. Just a literary device there. The author is making you 
notice something. I've just explained to you a scene here that ends with tension. Now, David, let's see what has to, what, what, what the, the scripture has to say about David. Verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. We looked at him last week. And next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now David. Had it seen one end? Israel shaking in their boots. Now David. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to is what we looked at last week. What are the two descriptions I said were important about David? Number one, he's the littlest. He's the youngest. And number two, he's a shepherd. And we find out those two incidental descriptions again here. Look at verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, David was the youngest. He's the littlest. He's not even invited to the party. He's he's not even invited to go to battle. He's out keeping flock over or keeping watch over the sheep. He's a shepherd. And again, we think about this. God uses the foolish and the weak things of this world to shame the strong. A, A weak little shepherd boy kind of cast aside, not even invited to anything, God is going to use him. And and, and Jesse's a little nervous about his sons. It's been 40 days, so he sends David to check up on his sons. Let's pick up the story in verse 23. Go down to verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, But here's a difference, and David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. There's that word again. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with the great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistines that he should defy, there's the word again, the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Chapter 17 really centers around three speeches that David gives. And and these three speeches reveal the heart of David. And in verse 26, it's the very first time that David actually speaks out loud in the Bible. It's very interesting to see what comes out of David's mouth the very first time he speaks. Because we've had him described as a shepherd, we've talked about his heart, but where's, where's his heart coming out in his mouth? Look at verse 26. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. What's he concerned about? Worship. God's honor. God's name. God's reputation. 
This man's come out to defy God and nobody's doing anything about it. David knows this is more than just two battles, uh, two, two armies on a battlefield. He knows this is a theological war. This is a worship war. Saul is silent. Saul should have been the one to come down and fight. He's silent. The Israelites are silent. And this bothers David. Why in the world would Israel be silent when the very name and reputation of God is being defied, is being profaned, is being blasphemed by this snake-like giant? This is a worship issue. And who's dare going to go down and confront this pagan in the valley? And it bothers David because he, he's concerned about worship. Now, at this point, you might be confused thinking, well, why is David so worked up about God's, God's name? Can't God take care of himself? Isn't God big enough to take care of his name? Why would David worry that God's name is profane? Isn't God a big God? Doesn't God take care of himself? Well, yes, but let me just ask you this question. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let me ask you a very simple question. Do you desire to protect the honor of God's name? And do you get bothered when God's name is profaned and when God's name is dishonored and the living God is, is blasphemed in your presence? Does it bother you at all? Do we truly care about the honor of God's name? What's the third commandment? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The name of the Lord is very important. How did Jesus begin the model prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is precious. You see, in our culture, names don't mean much, do they? I mean, my name's Sean. Who cares? It's an Irish name. It comes from John English. It comes from Johann German, going all the way back to the Apostle John. It means the Lord is gracious. But I don't know if when people think about the name Sean, they automatically think the Lord is gracious. Now, my son Aiden, his name's an Irish name. It means bringer of fire or warmth of the home, whichever one you want to look at. When he was little, it was called Little Fire. Zachary, my southern son's name, he was born around Memorial Day, and so he's named after Zachariah, which means the Lord will remember. Dawn, my wife, is obviously named after a dish soap. No, I'm just joking. I've, I've, <laughs> she's mad at me. But I've already told this joke. No, she's named, hers is an English name after the sunrise. She took it very seriously. She took it in good, in good, in good uh, consciousness. Here comes the What? So all throughout history, in, in the Old Testament, God, there's something about God's name, the name of God, representing his character. Think about these verses just for a few moments. Psalm 8, 1. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isn't it interesting the psalmist doesn't say, we just trust in you, God. He says, we trust in your name. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Proverbs 18, 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. In Jeremiah 10, 6. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. This entire battle is about the name and honor and worship of the living God and not allowing a pagan blasphemer to blaspheme God's name. 
And nobody's doing anything about it. it doesn't bo- they're over there shaking in their boots. They're paralyzed in fear. And it bothers David. And David says, I'll be the man to go down into that valley and to stand up to this snake-like pagan idolater and say, you can't defy the living God and get away with it. But there's one thing that David understands here. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. That's what David understands. But before he gets to Goliath, David has to face three giants in this story. We often think that David just faces Goliath, but there's actually two giants he's got to face before he gets to Goliath. He's got to face his older brother Eliab, and he's got to face Saul. Remember what I said last week about being tall? Being tall is not a good thing. Saul was tall. Eliab was tall. Goliath is tall. These three tall men will be proved to be nemesis to David in fighting this battle for the glory of God's name. So let's go to scene three, and let's see David interact with the first giant, his older brother, Eliab. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. Now Eliab. Now remember last week, Eliab was the one that was rejected. He was the oldest brother. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him as before. What does Eliab say? David, you're just a little pipsqueak. You've just left the flocks and herds to come down and just meddle where you're not supposed to meddle. And what's even amazing about this is notice what Eliab does. Eliab actually questions David's heart. Isn't that ironic? Because last week God had rejected Eliab because of his heart. What does Eliab say to David? Look there in verse um, 27. At the end of verse 27. I know your, I'm sorry, the end of verse 28. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. He's getting lectured by his older brother, who was actually the one that was rejected. And his older brother says, David, you've got a wicked heart. I can look into your heart. You have impure motives. You don't have a good heart. David, why are you down here, you little pipsqueak little brother? Go back home. You have no place here. You've got an evil, manipulative heart. And David says, what have I done? I've just said one thing. I would have said, if I was David, what I would have said to my older brother, how come you're not out there, Eliab? How come you're not out there? I don't know. Maybe David was wiser. But there's a second obstacle. So he has to get past Eliab, who questions the motives of his heart. But then there's Saul. So let's look at scene four. Let's look at verses 31 through 37. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Listen to what Saul said. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied, there's the word again, the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. This is David's second speech. And what is Saul? What's Saul saying to David? You're too green. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. Eliable is you've got a bad heart. You've got bad motives. Saul is you're too inexperienced, David. There's no way you can do this. And then David says, listen, I've gone and beaten bears with my own hands. A couple days ago, we went out to that Kingsburg um, animal sanctuary where you can see those tigers and lions. And I don't think any of us would be able to pull a beard of a tiger and, and beat, it, beat it, you know. But David was able to do that. And he pleads the fact that, listen, God has helped me in the past. God will help me again. And in David's speech, his second speech, what's he most concerned about again? God's glory, God's honor. Look what he says there. He says right there in verse 36, at the very end, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now let's get to scene five because the tension gets building here. David knows he's going to go fight. It's just a matter of how he's going to do it. And so let's go to scene 5, where Saul gives him an idea. Verses 38 through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Do you see the picture here? Saul says, hey, let me let, let, me let you wear my armor. But is David the Messiah king, the, the anointed king, is he going to accept the armor from the rejected king? No way. I'm not, David says, I'm not going to trust in man-made armor especially the man-made armor from the rejected king. As a matter of fact, I'm going to trust in something that doesn't make sense. I'm just going to get five smooth stones and a slingshot. I'm going to choose from God's creation, not from man-made armor. Now, this is counterintuitive because at all appearance of logic, it would say, David, you need to be like Tony Stark and get all Iron Manned up because if you're going to go out and face Goliath, you want to have the maximum amount of coverage because this is a big dude. And he's not even going out there with armor. And he says, I'm going to do what's counterintuitive. I'm going to do what seems weak. I'm going to do what seems not to make sense. I'm just going to take five smooth stones from God's creation and a slingshot. And I'm going to go face this giant. Again, God chooses the weak things. Now let's get to scene six, which is the climax. It's been building. This is where David actually meets Goliath. So he's, he's past Eliab, giant number one. He's past Saul, giant number two. Now he gets to the big giant, this pagan, snake-like, tall guy. And it's David's third speech. So let's read this. <clears throat> this always moves me when I hear this out of David's mouth. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked at Saul, David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. What's David's real weapon? Oh, it might be some stones and a slingshot, but what's his real weapon? I come to you in the name of the living God. That's the only weapon I need. God's name. And what is David most concerned about? Again, what's his words to Goliath? I come to you in the name of the living God. You've defied the living God. This day, you and every single one on the planet of the earth will know that there is a God in Israel and that He saves. This is about worship. This is more than just killing a giant out on a battlefield. This is about the name of God. It's about the reputation of God. It's about the worship of God. It's about the living God saving His people through the weakness of His chosen King. And here's what David knows. Every blasphemer needs to be stoned. What does Leviticus 24, 16 say? Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Why do you think David killed him by hitting him in on the forehead with a stone before he chopped off his head? It's a worship issue. David, as the anointed king, knows that God's name cannot be blasphemed, and any blasphemer, whether pagan or Israelite, needs to be stoned to death. So he takes that slingshot, probably two or three inches in diameter, slung it, and from most you know, scholars that you read, it could probably get up to about 150 miles an hour, and it sunk right in his forehead of all places. Now, Charles Spurgeon has a good reason why it hit him on his forehead. Uh, let me read Spurgeon to you, and only the way Spurgeon can. Are you ready for a Spurgeon quote? Here's what he says. Mark you well that David did smite Goliath, and he smote him effectually, not in the loins or on the hand or on the foot, but in a vital point he delivered the stroke that laid him low. He smote him in the brow of his presumption on the forehead of his pride. And thud, Goliath goes down, face down, worshiping, whether he likes it or not, the living God, because he's been stoned by the king who will not let the name of the Lord be defied. End of story, right? Just go be like David. Go get your five smooth stones and kill your giant. Here's five steps to help you overcome the giants in your life and just go out and do it. Remember, you and I are not David in this story. We're Israel. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are frightened. We're on the sidelines shaking in our boots and we don't honor the name of the the Lord the way we should. In our own strength, in our own power, we can't go down into the valley and fight the giant. 
the snake-like enemy of death, but a small, weak shepherd boy with counterintuitive weapons, five smooth stones and a slingshot, came down as the man in the middle, as the mediator, as the substitute for the nation of Israel. And as the substitute, he comes down and he looks the enemy straight in the eye and he fights the battle. And what David personally wins is then credited or imputed or given to God's people as if they had fought it themselves. But they didn't fight it themselves. A mediator comes down into the valley and fights. In the same way, we face an enemy. We face a big red giant, not Goliath, but the big red serpent called Satan. And we can look at his scales and see that he is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And when we look at Satan, we think there's no way we can fight Satan in our own power. And then we look at our own flesh, and we're lured away to sin, and we're lured away to temptation, and we look at our own flesh and we say there's no way we can fight our own flesh And to top all that off, we look at our world, the culture wanting to squeeze us into its mold. And so we're faced with this formidable giant, this unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we in no way can fight that in our own power. We need a man in the middle. Who's the man in the middle? The true shepherd king who was anointed, Jesus Christ, who came down from the hill in the middle of the valley, looked the devil in the face, looked the world in the face, looked the flesh in the face, died on the cross in weakness and in suffering, shed his blood, rose again from the grave, and his personal victory then becomes our victory as if we had fought it when we didn't because he loved us so much. 1 Timothy 5, 6-7. There is one God and there's one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you see how desperately powerful sin is in your life and how you can't fight it? Do you see how desperately helpless you are to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil? And do you see yourself as Israel this morning? I'm fearful, I'm paralyzed, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I'm not the worshiper I should be, I'm just a mess over here in the corner. That's the way we should see ourselves. We're not powerful, we're weak, but we need the one who is powerful, Jesus. We need the perfect substitute, we need the mediator, we need the champion, we need the man in the middle, Jesus, to come and fight our battles. And maybe this morning as you've come in here, you fear something. Maybe you fear death. Maybe there's something that you're facing in your life that's just a paralyzing fear. You just can't shake it. Maybe some of you have come in here and you're like, you know what, I've sinned so much, I'm so guilt-ridden, I'm not sure if God can forgive me because I have so much guilt in my life. Pastor Sean, if you knew what I had done in my life, you, you would not even want to talk to me. Some of you have come in here and you fought battle over battle in your own power and your own power and it's like you're on the treadmill and you keep fighting, you keep fighting, you're just frustrated. 
Maybe you're fearful, maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're guilty. And I could have come in here this morning and said, just fight your battles. Here's five steps on how to do it. And some of you, again, would have left very prideful thinking you could do it, and some of you would have left very defeated thinking you couldn't do it. So what I've done this morning is I've taken you on a journey to say, let's look at this passage differently and realize that it all culminates in Christ. And because of Christ's victory, because of Jesus' victory, he then gives you the power, he gives you the strength, he gives you the grace to face your battles, to face your giants, to face your hurdles. I'm not going to be naive to think that you don't have hurdles, that you don't have giants. Probably have some big giants this week that you've got to face. But we've got to go through Christ as the one who fought the big battle of the flesh and the world and the devil. Now, I want to show you something interesting. There's a postscript to this story. Look at verses 52 through 53. And the man of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. That's a big turnaround, isn't it? What was Israel like before? Shaken in our boots, paralyzed in fear, afraid to go face Goliath. But now that the mediator, David, has gone down and fought the battle, what has happened to them? They now have been energized. They now have been motivated. They now have the confidence to go chase after the Philistines. And they said, we're going to go plunder their camp. You see, the Israelites have been changed. They have confidence to face their giants because of their mediator. And in the same way, because Jesus has fought our battles and he's won the battle and gives us the power and strength, we can now go with confidence to face our giants. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of our mediator. And we can look a lost and dying world that's in the, the, the clutches of Satan. We can go into the camp, if you will, of the world and we can say to these POWs that are in the prison, we can say, listen, we're going to plunder the camp because the victor has won and he's won it through weakness by dying on the cross. And so we can go to all people everywhere and say, listen, if you're in bondage this morning, if you're in guilt this morning, if you're in fear this morning, you can be liberated by King Jesus if you would submit your knee and you would bow your knee to him. He can save you this morning from your sins. And we can go plunder the camp of Satan with confidence because of what Jesus has done. Now, are you motivated this morning to go face your giants now? I'm more motivated to go face my giants now because I know who's won the battle. It's Jesus. It's not me out there slinging my slingshots trying hard to pick off giants. I go in the power of Christ who was the man in the middle. And so here's my ultimate question for you this morning. Will you bow your knee to the ultimate man in the middle? the ultimate king. Will you bow your knee to King Jesus and trust him, not only for your salvation, but also to fight your battles this week? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. This moment, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I just want you to spend a few moments in praise and worship, praising Jesus that he's your champion, 
that he's your victor, that he is the one who's conquered death. He's conquered the devil. He's conquered hell. He's conquered your sin. He's the man in the middle that looked that enemy straight in the eye and went to the cross and rose again on your behalf and just spend some time in worship. This morning and you've never bowed your knee to Jesus, you've never admitted that you're a sinner, you've never come to that point where you've trusted him completely for your salvation and, and you're full of fear and you're full of guilt and you're, 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 you know that you're a sinner, would you spend some time confessing that sin and, and, and crying out for Jesus to save you? If you come to him in repentance and faith, the Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, so call upon his name this morning. So would you just spend some time in silent prayer before the living God, asking him to search your heart so that you can worship him? Father, we are in awe of the fact that you would even send Jesus to die for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus, you loved us so much that you came and died for us. When we were helpless and hopeless like Israel on the sidelines, you didn't expect us to go fight the battle ourselves because we never could in our own power. So praise your name, Jesus, that you came as the victor. You came as the champion. You came as the substitute. You came as the man in the middle, the one mediator between God and man to die on the cross and to rise again as the true king. And Lord, my prayer this morning is whatever issues people are dealing with today. Lord, maybe there are some that have walked into this room with fear in their hearts. Lord, would you let them realize that perfect love casts out fear and would they trust in you? Father, maybe some have walked in this room and they have immense guilt in their hearts. Would you show them that forgiveness comes through Christ? Father, maybe some have come into this room with major frustration because they've just been trying hard to, to live the Christian life in their own power. Would you show them that your grace is sufficient? Lord, maybe some have come into this place with sickness. Others have come into this place with financial problems or whatever giants we may be facing. We realize this story's not about us giving up, getting up enough courage to go muster up enough strength to go kill our giants, but it's really trusting in what you've done for us. And by your victory, we can go have confidence to face whatever comes our way. We can move forward in confidence because of your victory, Jesus. Would you help us this week to live in that victory? Would you help us this week to walk in the confidence of what it means to be your child? And Lord, again, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as personal Lord and Savior, would today be their day of salvation? Just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to let you know, again, like every week, if, if you're here this morning, and what I've said has struck a chord with you, and what I've said has maybe made sense, or, or you feel like a pumping in your chest, or you're under conviction, I will be here after the service up at the front to talk to you. If you need prayer, if you need questions answered, others will be up here as well that can talk to you, that can, that can minister to you, that can pray with you. We don't want you to leave without having that be known. So we want to offer that invitation to you after we sing our final song. So Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for being our champion. Thank you for being our mediator. Thank you for winning the victory through the weakness of the cross. And thank you for honoring the name of the Lord. And thank you for being our great God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.